anyway, fun times. <laughs> Sorry to be such a bummer. <laughs> no, we got our we got to get our political talk. This is a tradition. You did yeah. this the first time you came on. I know, spent- and then you put it right in the intro, and I was like, shit. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the upcoming book, Keep It Funky, Keep It Brief, a comprehensive history of one-syllable funk bands from the 1970s and the 1980s, including, but not limited to, Zap, Sun, War, Smoke, Ice, Slave, Life, Chic, Shack, Maze, Catch, Clear with three E's, Link with an X, Sky with two Y's, and Brick. <laughs> it's a working title. The only way that that could have been more impressive is if you had arranged them in a way that formed a full sentence. <laughs> All right, back to the drawing board. <laughs> I would read that book, Sean. I will read that book, I should say. All right, coming soon. Just got to nail down the title. (laughs) Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I've been inspired by this week's music, and I would like to make my own new genre. Yeah? Yeah, something. Hmm. It's got a little groove that makes you snap your fingers, but maybe has a little modern edge to it. Love a good edge. Yeah, I think I'm going to call it New Moogie Woogie. (laughs) New Moogie Woogie. I'm sure it'll catch on. Is that new music and boogie woogie combined? New metal. Oh, wow. I'm I'm here for it. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I am co-host Peter Cook. And it's taken me about 30 years to realize that my classmates in gym class in junior high were huge fans of our featured artist this week. (laughs) Every time I shot the ball, they they talked about this band all the time. But I'm realizing now it was basically whenever I, we were playing basketball and I shot the ball, they all yelled, Brick! Frequently. Oh, I bet. Big fans. One of these days we'll go out together. I'll, we'll work on your form, Peter. Okay, Jeremy. Nice. Well, who else do we have in the house today? I'm Lauren Rayum, and I'm a vinyl collector and podcast host based in Toronto. And I'm super excited to be here for the fifth time on the pod. Wow. Fifth time. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised too. <laughs> It's got to make you a top five guest, I would think, right? Yeah, I think Lauren is in there. Like top three, even? Yeah, yeah, wow. Like Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. Definitely Hall I of Fame. I did it. I did it, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> top of the world. <laughs> well, excited to have you back on, Lauren, and uh, really stoked to hear more about your 
ventures in podcasting. This is the first time that you've been on and talked about that, which we can we can talk mm-hmm. about that more later in the episode. Sure. Why don't you tell us what, even though we've already kind of revealed it, what artist and album <laughs> we're featuring this week? Uh, this week, I'm here to talk about a record called Good High by a band called Brick. It was released in 1976, I believe. And I think has one of the best, one of the best album covers um, I've ever seen in a dollar bin. Yeah. Yeah. Would you care to describe <laughs> this album cover? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. It's uh, It doesn't leave anything to the imagination when it comes to good high and what that might refer to. There's a, a man, a, a man looking, um, a man with a cigar in his mouth and what looks to be some sort of weed paraphernalia. He's having a good time. He looks like he's having a good high, let's say. Yeah, that's Jimmy Brown. That's um, right. The band Brick, and we'll we'll talk more about Jimmy and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Before we go any further, what song would you like to feature first to give people a good high? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll start with the very first track on the record called Here We Come. There's so much going on in this song. I think it's a great intro to the band. Just thinking like, this is the first record they ever released, their debut album. And this is the sort of introduction that people had to, to Brick. There's a lot of like funky bass throughout the song, a saxophone, the flute. Um, but what I love most is this like solid chord progression in the background um, with the piano that sort of anchors the song. It's a weird message. The lyrics continue to say, we're going to pacify, which is like, I don't know what they're getting at, but I, I suppose it's sort of, you know, saying they're going to put people's mind minds at ease when they listen to Rick. All right. Let's do this. Here we come on Brick's Good High, 1976 Bang Records, Side A, Track 1.
I think I misspoke. There isn't any flute on this track, but there is a lot of saxophone by um, Jimmy Brown, who is like the multi-instrumentalist in the group. He does play the flute. He does play the sax and a bunch of other instruments. But I love the way he plays saxophone on this track. It reminds me of Gary Bartz, which I think is like incorporating some of that jazz element into, into the song, into the band. Yeah, and Gary Bartz, another guy who effortlessly could toe the line between jazz and funk. Mm, definitely. Yeah, Jimmy Brown worked as Brick's one-man horn and woodwind section. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually a pretty small outfit for a funk band. Mm. There's five main members, and we'll talk more about them. Uh, but because he's covering so many different instruments, they get they have a very full sound for a, a five piece. Yeah, that's shocking. It's just five. I assume there were like seven to ten people in this band. <laughs> that was pretty common for <laughs> funk bands in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, it didn't, yeah. I also just want to say I love it when a band uses a song that feels like appropriate entrance music as the opening mm. track on their album. That track feels like the one they could be playing as the band walks on stage for every show, you know, totally. thematically and the way it's arranged. It's just a great way to kick off an album. Yeah, it's like they're very aware of their, the audience. They like want to give an introduction for folks listening for the first time. Yeah, d it definitely, especially with the title, Here We Come, that has <laughs> intro Here we come. theme <laughs> written all over it. Yeah, totally. This is an actual dollar bin record for me. I bought this in, I don't know what record store it was, but somewhere in Columbus, Ohio, which if any listener has ever has the chance, go to Columbus. There's great record shopping there. But I found this record. I'd heard of Brick before, but I'd never really listened to their music. And then I saw this album cover, which we mentioned earlier is like a really great cover, like just visually. I was like, wow, I have to have this. I will buy it for you know, two bucks or whatever. And I'm so glad I did. It's such a great album, track after track. It's it's solid. It's a brick. It's solid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was new to me, but I did know one song on it that we'll be playing in a little while I, once I heard it. Uh, Sean, I know you have some familiarity with this band. Yeah, this is a band I've been seeing in the bins for a very long time, bought and sold their music. A whole lot i don't actually own a copy of this one this is one of those records that i thought i owned because i've just like bought and sold it a million times but the one i tend to gravitate to the most is their second album self-titled uh, so it was fun to get a little more familiar with this debut uh, i mean i'm sure we'll talk more about this but i feel like the second album may be slightly better mm -hmm. but this isn't outstanding debut album that we're listening to here today yeah yeah i hadn't heard that second album before i did check it out after you said that uh, doing some research a lot of people said that they feel that the second album the self-titled is their grand achievement and it is it's a very cohesive set of songs but i do like that they're kind of finding their footing a little bit on this record uh, you can hear them coming together as a band and songwriters and it's still really solid mm -hmm. yeah and you can listen throughout their whole catalog they basically found their sound by the first record there's just like a few things they ironed out maybe got a little bit tighter a little bit more adventurous but 
I mean, this band hit the ground running for sure. Totally. And you should we should mention that um, the band produced their first two records, which are the most popular, the most well, uh, well-received of all of the records. I think they've released seven in total, spanning from this one in 1976 up until I think like 87, 88. But the first two records were produced by the band and they were by far the most successful for, for the group. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some producer names aside from the band listed on it, but I, from what I gathered, and there's not a lot of information about this band <laughs> readily available, but from That's what true. I gathered, those producers were responsible for the first single from this that predated the album Music Matic. I, I believe they recorded that single and put it out on the, that, the label that those producers were responsible for, Main Street Records. And uh, then Brick was signed to Bang Records on the strength of that single, and the rest of the album was produced by the band. Yeah, I got the sense from, like you mentioned, there's very little information about them, unfortunately, but I did get the sense that they were really just a bunch of, you know, very talented and passionate musicians who liked to jam together. Like they met within uh, the music scene. Like I think they all met at a concert that uh, Jimmy Brown was performing at. And they just sort of, they like to jam together, play music together, and consequently kind of had a better understanding of the kind of music they wanted to produce and put out in the world. And then once they got that success after the first two records, they were then by their label forced to have a a producer who kind of shifted the band sound a bit and, and consequently maybe wasn't, you know, as as true to what they wanted to to put out. Yeah, and the type of music that they set out to make was a combination <laughs> of disco and jazz. Jazz. Great segue. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I love it. Um, yeah, the second track I want to play is is actually called Daz, which is disco and jazz combined. <laughs> um, it's a really great song. It claimed the number one spot on the R&B charts for four weeks, which is pretty incredible. Listeners might be familiar with this track. Um, of all the tracks on this album, it's probably the most popular because it's been on so many disco and funk compilations. If you like scroll through Discogs, you'll just see pages and pages of compilation records that feature this song. And it's also really cool is that they many times throughout the song, they like they mention disco jazz. <laughs> it's sort of like a, a rhythm in the background that they're singing. I think the version that we have to play today is a shorter version, but if listeners can listen to the longer version, which is on Spotify, the longer version of the track is about five and a half minutes long and has a really sweet bridge featuring a flute riff. <laughs> Again, Jimmy Brown just going at it on the flute. It's uh, it's It's definitely worth the listen. Yeah, it's strange. Different pressings of this album have different edits of Daz. I believe there's, I want to say, three different lengths <laughs> that the song can be, uh, depending on which pressing you get. And we happen to have one with the like radio, the shortened radio version. Mm -hmm. But regardless of that, it's a jam. How about we do that now? Let's do it. All right. This is Daz, side A, track three.
if by chance you're not familiar with that song with the vocals on it, but it still sounded familiar and you're into early 90s gangster rap, you may have recognized that from it being prominently sampled in Ice Cube's 1991 diss track against his former group NWA, No Vaseline. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a brutal takedown. (laughs) I'm not familiar with that track, but I can't wait to listen to it. Hear, Hear how they sampled this track. It grooves. No, no surprise. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> it's the perfect bed track for him tearing apart his <laughs> for, former band members. Oh my gosh. I used to DJ this record out a lot. And every time I played it, people, you would just like, you know, it's like early in the evening, people are just having their drinks or whatever at the bar. And you just like see people like look over <laughs> to the DJ booth and like people will come up to the dance floor and start, you know, dancing, hanging out. This is a real banger. People love it. Yeah, and I think we've talked about before how certain types of music, when the lyrics are about the music that they're playing, like in rock, when they tell you they're going to rock you, it's usually pretty intolerable and (laughs) cheesy. I feel like funk is the best genre to get away with that, or in this case, daz, disco jazz. Uh, And this group does like to talk, they're very meta, they like to talk about the music and the lyrics a lot. It's not just Mm -hmm. on this song. Totally. Yeah, that might be bias ever so slightly, but I'm going to have to agree with you. Fans can talk about funking as much as they want in their songs, and I'm going to be so happy about it. But if a band starts talking about how they're going to rock or how rock won't die, any of that stuff, I'm just done. I don't care anymore. <laughs> Unless it's heavy petting, of course, right, Sean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only one for me. <laughs> I was going to say, I think there's something about the sort of, um, I don't know what the word would be, um, this kind of music that like doesn't take itself too seriously. It's sort of like, yeah, it's like it's fun, it's light, lighthearted. Whereas like when I hear someone say they're going to rock, it's just like you're taking yourself too seriously dude like just let it go it's not like this on this record are, are there any folk songs about how they're gonna folk you up i hope not unfortunately <laughs> probably <laughs> <laughs> i haven't heard it but i don't think i want to no like definitely some not triple ironic sense where they're like so far up their own ass yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe if if color me bad made a folk record they want to folk you up <laughs> You know, that doesn't sound half bad. I would listen. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to have an open mind on these kinds of things. That's good. Yeah. All right. So I have a theory. I'm going to run it past y'all. So the genre of disco can be a little bit divisive. Some people love it. And a lot of people are kind of instantly turned off by a straight up disco record. But it kind of feels like when a band combines disco with something else especially with jazz it kind of makes it more approachable for a modern audience Hmm. i found this to be i don't know like it's barely disco in my mind like it's danceable jazz or something but when i think of disco there's like certain indicators in my mind of what makes a track disco and there weren't a lot of those in my mind in this see This is where I think genre is like a lot of times once you get to the edge of a certain genre, there's the the border between them are much more porous. Like I personally got more disco than jazz out of this because of that, like four on the floor beat. That's like 
a very disco characteristic um, of, you know, so when I hear this song, it sounds more like disco to me than jazz, but there are other songs that we'll play later that are much more jazz than they are disco. But I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's just sort of the, it's funk. I think that's the genre that it is to me at least. Yeah. Well, in the the context too of this time period is this was one of the first times in modern music where two genres were actively blending into one hybrid. Like a lot of jazz musicians in the 70s were really looking to expand outside of what people thought of as normal jazz at that point. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of funk bands that were basically just backed by jazz guys who were now studio musicians. And you had a lot of jazz artists who were basically making funk records and, you know, public opinion on that has changed drastically over the decades. A lot of people thought jazz musicians that made funk records were sellouts, Mm -hmm. you know, but seeing those like earlier experiments with combining genres, it feels like that maybe is what makes it more interesting to modern ears because like a lot of modern genres are all about just combining as many things. It feels like a lot of modern music is almost impossible to really classify anymore. I think you're absolutely right. But I think disco is a bit of an outlier because so much of the, that gut reaction you talk about where people just don't like disco, it can really divide people. I think so much of that has less to do with the music itself and more about what disco stands for, which is like selling out, not taking life seriously, being super materialistic and just caring about money rather than like musical expression or other things. That's sort of what we think of as disco when I I think, I mean, disco is such a, it's a genre that encompasses many other genres. I think there's the four on the floor beat. A lot of times there's strings involved. Obviously we get like the Nile Rogers baseline that becomes like a really big part of the disco sound. But like ultimately disco is a very amorphous, uh, that's the word, genre. It can cover so many different uh, genres within it. And I think, yeah, this record, it makes you dance, which is, you know, the main, the main thing. Yeah. It's hard to listen to a brick album and then listen to like a Saron record and be like, yes, these are both the same genre basically. Right. Right. But I think that's again, part of what disco, like what, what even is disco as a genre? Like how do we qualify it in musical terms? I think it's really hard to do that because it really was a, a movement, right? It's more about like, it's obviously about some of the qualities of the music, but I think a big part of it is just like the shift from live performing bands in clubs to people who cared about audio equipment and like DJs playing music that would make you dance at an, on a turntable in that shift to like a discotheque environment. And yeah, like, early discos, you know, like loft parties with Dave Mancuso, like they were playing all sorts of stuff that is, you know, part of that, part of that scene. Yeah. Well, at least we know exactly what the subgenre Daz sounds like. Mm -hmm. It sounds like this record. (laughs) (laughs) And a reason that this band and album might be a little hard to pin down compared to other disco and jazz and funk that we've talked about with those all colliding together is because of where this was happening. Do we want to talk a little bit about the background of this group? Sure. The ATL? Oh, ATL. (laughs) Yes. Brick is from Atlanta, ATL, Georgia. So Brick was formed in 1972 by Reggie Hargis, who's the guitarist. 
He wrote most of the songs, including the one we just heard, Daz. Unfortunately, he passed away really recently, just in 2021. Um, the other members of the band were Ray Ransom on bass, Eddie Irons on drums, Donald Nevins on keyboards, who sadly passed away in 2011, and Jimmy Lord Brown, who we've mentioned a few times, uh, on his place saxophone, flute, trombone, and trumpet, and did a lot of the arranging as well. So most of the members also sing, often in a simultaneous lead vocal, but Jimmy is effectively the, the front man and featured on the album cover as well. Yeah, yeah, he seems to be the one that was often looked to as sort of the face of Brick, even though I heard that they basically all work together uh, pretty closely. It was a very democratic process. Yeah, but he has this signature sound, like not only is he playing many of the instruments when he sings, you know it, because he has this like really deep baritone voice. It's like <laughs> very distinct, but he's also like, I think, sort of the person who formed the band. They were formed by two. So there were two different bands. One was jazz, one was disco and their signature sound. Obviously Daz signifies that, that mix, as we mentioned, the disco and jazz, but Jimmy Brown was part of a jazz group and that meant, and he met other members of Brick when he was like performing and they were going to see his shows. Um, they began recording together and released Musicmatic as their first single in 1975, which as we mentioned is also on this album. So yeah, he's sort of like the de facto band leader for sure. Yeah. And he's a great interview still. Uh, he's the one that most of the information came from interviews with him. <laughs> we were What we were able to find out there on the web. Uh, seems like a real positive person. Yeah. He mentioned he's a, I mean, a very positive person and he has a really good memory as well. I think in one of the interviews I watched, he talked about like where they got the name brick. And he mentioned how, like, I guess there were a lot of bricks in one of his like grandparents' backyard where they hung out. And brick is meant to like represent being solid and grounded. I guess they were like trying to come up with a name and he just like, there's a brick. Let's call us our, our band brick. And I think it's really fitting because the band is still together. They're still, they're still performing. They're solid. They're grounded. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that at this point, he may be the only original member from what I could tell that's still performing with them. But some of the the musicians have been with them for decades at this point. Uh, mm -hmm. it, so they, they're still going. They haven't released an album in a long time, but no. I'm sure that they can make good money just performing live. Oh, absolutely. I would I would pay good money to see them live. <laughs> the song, Their songs are amazing. Um, I did want to mention as well, like, obviously, this is their first record. Um, it was released on Bang Records. The label is also known for doing a lot of, or producing a lot of hits in the 60s, including I Want Candy, Hang On Sloopy, and Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison, <laughs> which is such a strange connection. But apparently they relocated to Atlanta from New York, and that's where they connected with Brick. Yeah, it was Eileen Burns, who was the widow of the label founder, Burt Burns, uh, she was the one who discovered Brick after they released that first single and signed them to Bang Records. Mm -hmm. They went on to tour with some of the biggest names in like funk and even some of the more rock leaning uh, soul stuff at the time, like Parliament Funkadelic and Mother's Finest. Are any of you familiar with that group, Mother's Finest? No. Yeah, they were kind of like a hard rock funk crossover, but like an early one before that was more of a thing later yeah. on, right? Yeah, yeah, they played 
Kalamazoo in, I think around the time this record was released, Mother's Finest opened for Black Sabbath at, at Wing Stadium Get in out. Kalamazoo, Michigan. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. I think they were produced by Tom Werman, who we talked about in last week's producers episode. Oh, nice. Uh, Mother's Finest were produced by him. Yeah, I remember seeing that name, but I didn't check them out. Yeah. I don't know. I have no sense of if they would be a, an artist we could cover on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Or they are. Yeah, they seem to be like almost entirely forgotten about. Their records are, most of them are pretty cheap from my experience. Yeah, people who saw them, who I've talked to who were at that show, uh, said they were phenomenal. So, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, back to Brick. Well, should we play the next track? Yeah, let's do that. What did you have next? Well, this was actually Peter's uh, request. It's uh, Can't Wait, which is, I don't know what track on the record. I really like it. It reminds me a lot of like Maggot Brain era Funkadelic because Jimmy Brown's like baritone in the beginning. He's like talking in the beginning about mortality <laughs> and other dark topics. And it's sort of, yeah, it reminds me of that, of some of the songs on, on Maggot Brain. Yeah, I wanted to feature it because it's one of my favorite tracks. It has this menacing urgency to it that it seems different from most of the rest of the record. This is Can't Wait, Side A, track four. definitely hear the maggot brain era funkadelic influence there but uh after the kind of menacing intro 
the influence I think of the most is the Ohio Players, which mm. had been making hits for quite a few years before this record dropped. I'm sure they had to be an influence on Brick. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. That menacing sounding part, that riff, is another piece from this album that's been sampled in hip hop by the ultra magnetic MCs on the track MC Champion from 1992. Love that group. Makes sense. It's uh, got like a that chromatic kind of like, yeah, menacing's a word. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love the time signature change in the chorus where it like shifts from one to another really quick. I think it's like, it kind of calls your attention, you know? Yeah, that's, I think that's one of the big things that in my mind made it feel not very disco to me are mm. the like time changes and the like kind of rhythmic shifts. Mm-hmm. Though I guess you're, it does kind of keep four on the floor a lot of the time. So yeah, it's a blend. Yeah, it's a blend for sure. I did want to mention that Brick's road manager was a guy named Michael Malden who would go on to helm a successful tour production and management business with clients including Cameo, Earth, Wind & Fire, the SOS Band, Sister Sledge, Luther Vandross, and Anita Baker. And later, he became the president of the Columbia Records Black Music Division and is the father of producer Jermaine Dupree, known for his work with acts like Criss Cross, Mariah Carey, and Usher. And Jimmy Brown, singer and horn section of Brick. His son is Sleepy Brown, who is one-third of the Atlanta-based production team Organized Noise, known for their work with Outkast, Goody Mob, and TLC Waterfalls. Organized Noise wrote that song for TLC. Wow, their kids, like, made the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. (laughs) Brick... There's a lot more once that none of that stuff was readily available. I had to dig to find some of that information and uh, Bricker highly influential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you mention outcast as well? I did. Yeah. Um, that's, I feel like that's the one band I always think of when I hear about like the Atlanta music scene. It's like, I always go to outcast. That's amazing that they have that connection, but not surprising. Sounds like they had a lot of influence. Yeah, so I think Brick deserve more credit. I think they might be a little underappreciated. Hmm, <laughs> I think you might be onto something here. <laughs> well, I've actually since purchased their their second record, and it's self titled. It's excellent. Just for memory, I think it was more expensive than this one. I think it's more like you said earlier in the uh, in the show that they sort of found their their stride in in the second album um it has the tracks happy and juzik which are like my favorite brick songs happy is just such a yeah it's a great track we should mention that they had five other records that were released throughout the late 70s and 80s but nothing was as successful as their their first two releases i think yeah i was sort of alluded to this uh in the beginning but their label sort of insisted that they get a producer uh, after they produced their first two records themselves, which I think, yeah, was sort of the the shift in their sound away from from this this Daz sound to something a bit more like pop, pop heavy. Yeah, yeah. that's too bad. They had it figured out. They really Should've did. Just let the band cook, you know. Yeah. Let's say you got those first two records right, 
Mm -hmm. And you're just standing there clueless and you turn to our co-host Sean and you ask him, telepathically of course, what record do I get now, Sean? (laughs) If, 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 If you want something similar to this. Yeah, if you want more of that disco jazz sound, where do you go? The Daz Band. <laughs> that <laughs> that is one fairly obvious option. Although a lot of the Daz Band stuff is a little more '80s boogie sounding than this record. Yeah, I got three records that I feel like are a good cross between jazz and funk. They came out right around the same time period. They're similar, and I would recommend them. So let me tell you about them. First up is a group called Karma, recommending their debut album Celebration from 1976. I think their second album for everybody from 1977 is a little bit better, but their first record is an outstanding debut. Karma was kind of a like session player producer super group, which featured some people we've talked about before, like Ernie Watts trombonist George Bohannon and keyboardist Reggie Andrews. Do you guys remember Reggie Andrews? It sounds familiar, but I cannot place it. Reggie Andrews was talked about in our Patrice Russian episode. He was her mentor at Locke High School in Los Angeles, where he also mentored many other people, such as Tyrese from the Fast and the Furious franchise who was at one point an R&B singer, <laughs> and The Far Side. What? He also wrote, co-wrote Let It Whip by Daz Band. Wow. Whoa. So yeah, if you want more of that funk jazz crossover, definitely check out the band Karma. They are incredible. Just like top-of-the-line players making some very funky music that no one seems to remember anymore. Second recommendation Aquarian Dream, their album Norman Connors Presents Aquarian Dream from 1976. We have recommended this band a couple times, I believe, on our actual Norman Connors episode, but just amazing jazz funk group that their records are, if people know what they're doing, they're going to sell them for like 20 bucks, but you can still find them cheap all the time. Nice. Cool, cool. Nice. And last recommendation, a band that everyone knows, but not enough people are really familiar with on the level they should be, Cool in the Gang. One of the all-time great funk Mm -hmm. jazz crossover groups. As Mad Lib said, even Cool in the Gang got jazz for that ass. (laughs) I'm recommending their 1975 album, Spirit of the Boogie, an absolute funk masterpiece. You know, I have one of their, a few of their albums, but their live record is one of my favorites. I like, it's like listening to, listening to live funk. It's like, it's, it's otherworldly. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They're a group that most people know two or three songs by them. And there's much, much more (laughs) there. Hollywood Swingers. Everyone knows that one. Peter and I are looking at each other clueless. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for those recommended similar albums, Sean. Lauren, we turn to you now. We are anxious 
ready to hear <laughs> oh, no. about we want to hear about your podcast that you're now doing since yeah. you've been a guest on i'd buy that for a dollar for several years now and mm -hmm. this is the first time you've come to us and have been called yourself a podcaster what have you been up right. to well obviously i was inspired by by you folks i'm like you know i love i love your podcast i love podcasting. So I put together a podcast. It's not music related. It more uh, relates to my professional life as a learning designer. It's called How'd You Learn To? And it's a podcast series that interviews folks who have interesting hobbies or skills about how they learn to do a particular thing. Not just the skill itself, but the learning journey they went on to go from beginner to like mastery. We've interviewed a tea sommelier, a beekeeper, a magician, a cosplayer, all sorts of folks who have like really interesting backgrounds and hobbies and passions. And, and yeah, it's, it's been really fun. I, I totally sympathize with you all in terms of <laughs> wrangling guests and editing audio and, and uploading podcast episodes to Spotify. It's, it's been fun though. I really enjoy it. Well, in a world of far too many podcasts, you've achieved a very difficult thing by coming up with a very interesting premise. That sounds <laughs> like a great podcast. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, I'd love to hear hear your feedback on it. I I will say I've wanted to do a podcast for a while. I, I have a background in college radio. It's how I kind of got into record collecting. And I've always really enjoyed the art of radio. I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, like, you know, all the time. And so... I've always wanted to do one, but it does feel like there's, it's a pretty saturated market and I wanted to find something that was a bit, uh, a bit different, not as popular a topic. Um, something that I would like to listen to. Yeah. And you will find your audience when you find something unique mm -hmm. to cover. Like you guys have. <laughs> yeah. We were surprised at how original our idea was once <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we realized that there weren't really any other podcasts doing this specifically. Right. Uh, well, excellent. We encourage our listeners to check that out. We will all be checking that out too. We're just learning of this legitimately. <laughs> this is our learning journey. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a good opportunity while on that topic to congratulate our frequent guest, Mark T. Weathersby, a.k.a. DJ Mahogany, on the launching of his new podcast, 12 Inches of Pleasure, a podcast that celebrates the 12-inch single, it aired, as promised, on January 6th of 2024. Yeah, Donna Summer episode. Wow. That was a good one. Way to yeah. go. Congratulations. I will definitely be listening to that. DJ Mahogany has, like, the best taste, so I can't wait. I think we need, like, two more guests, then we can start our own, like, podcast company. Oh, if we get a few more guests to start their own, yeah, of <laughs> our regular guests to start their own podcast, we'll get the Patreon going. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, sign everyone up to the I Buy That Network. Nice, <laughs> awesome. It's it's going to happen, y'all. <laughs> well, speaking of which, you can always uh, get more content on this podcast over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. We have bonus episodes. We have mixes for uh, $25 a month. You can subscribe to the vinyl tier where we will send you records monthly along with a handwritten note. So check all that out over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Lauren, 
as always, great to have you on. Did you have any final thoughts on Brick before we introduce the final selection? So my final thoughts on Brick are, I think this is like a classic dollar bin record. It's, you know, fairly easy to find and it's very it's it's definitely worth <laughs> worth getting. I encourage everyone to purchase it. And I just I love that it does cover so many genres. And the more genres it covers, the more you realize that the border between genres is very porous. There's no real there's nothing that you know, there's not like a distinct disco sound or distinct funk sound or anything. They kind of all blend together on this record. Yeah, it's good if you're a DJ and you need something danceable. <laughs> Definitely. And, but it's like sophisticated and interesting enough to just like sit and listen to, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just love that they got together just jamming together. This this is obviously a real love for them. It's a real passion that's continued for, for many decades. Yeah. And if you get the opportunity to see them live, do it. Do it. Well, what was going to be the final cut that we feature i thought you'd never ask so the last track that i want to play is called southern sunset and um i know we mentioned that you know some of their songs may sound more like disco more like jazz but this is definitely one that sort of dips more into the the jazz sound it feels a lot like it belongs on bobby humphrey's record fancy dancer who is a a jazz flautist themselves um that album came out a year before this record, so maybe it did influence them a little bit. This song gets a bit cheesy with the saxophone, but I still really love it, and I'm excited to play it as the final track today. Uh, Bobby Humphrey is one of the best ever. I just got to jump in yeah, and say that. Absolutely. Chicago musician, incredible. I also got a bit of a Crusaders vibe Ooh, from this track. Yeah. And I, being that they titled it Southern Sunset and the earlier or the same year that this record came out, this Brick record, the Crusaders had released those Southern Nights. So I almost wondered if it was supposed to be a mm, reference to that. Could be. Could, could be. Well, while everyone's talking about how there's no disco sound on this song, the two songs it reminded me of are technically disco, proto-disco, early disco jams. So as a DJ, I love having really good instrumental songs to sprinkle into a set they don't always hit super well but it's just it's something i love doing and two of my absolute favorite instrumental jams from the 70s that do actually get people dancing and this song reminded me ever so slightly of isaac hayes hung up on my baby from the tough guys soundtrack yes absolutely yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) and the other one is love unlimited orchestra's satin soul the Barry White group. This one does have some strings on it. They go beyond uh, as much as uh, Jimmy Brown can cover a lot. They had to, they had to bring in some extra players on this one. So the arranger is Skip Lane and the Atlanta symphony has a few players that, that come in on this track. It's an instrumental great cut, get this brick record, get their second self-titled album. We aren't steering you wrong. We promise. My name is Peter Cook. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Lauren Ram. <laughs>